I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. We have been looking for the last four weeks at Isaiah 53, the song of the servant, which foretold how Jesus would come and would pay the price that would enable us to be restored to God. Today we're going to look at the three verses that led up to that song. The three verses that, as it were, inspired the prophet to declare the words of that song. When we began this series, we read starting in verse 7 of Isaiah 52 so that we can see the context. We're going to read that again so that we can see what it was that God proclaimed through Isaiah first before inspiring him to write that song of chapter 53. So starting at verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they have understood. Amen. Beloved servants of Christ our King, as I said, the last month we have enjoyed the privilege of studying the song of the servant from Isaiah 53. But on Friday, we heard that song conclude. The servant's triumphant death made redemption and reward certain for God's people. But that song was not given to us in a vacuum. It didn't arise from the silence. No, Israel's song arose as a response to the words of God Himself. And it was that proclamation of God Himself that was really the proclamation of victory proclamation of glory for God's people. And so it's fitting that today, as we mark the triumphant resurrection of Jesus, it's fitting that we hear and consider that proclamation that gave rise to the song of the servant. And as we do, we see that it's a proclamation of success. So that's our theme this morning. God proclaims the success of His servant, Jesus Christ. And that proclamation begins by declaring that He is the servant supremely exalted at the end. He is supremely exalted at the end. Notice the context. God 
spoke just before this proclamation, beginning in verse 13, to Israel, to God's Old Testament people. He had told them, really, in all the chapters leading up to this, He had told them that they could expect that their sins would have a cost. Because they had persisted in rebellion against the Lord, they would be cast out from the land of God's blessing. They wanted to live like the people of the nations. They wanted to live like those who follow false gods. Then they would live among them. And they would see the misery of living among those who serve that which is not the true God. But, he said, that would not be their end. He would restore them. He would accomplish for them the deliverance they needed. And now, now the Lord urges them to rejoice. Despite their impending exile, they could rejoice because of the assurance that God loved them, that God would restore them, that God would do everything necessary to bring back His people to Himself. And it's on the heels of that urging that verse 13 introduces God's servant who will accomplish that restoration. The Lord reveals His servant as the one who is wisely prosperous. Let me explain that. If you look in the the text we just read in your pew Bible, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. But there's an alternate rendering of that verb. A lot of Bibles include that as a a textual note or a, a marginal note. That it can mean, my servant shall act wisely, or it can mean, my servant shall prosper. That Verb, yes, keel, can equally mean either, and it's used about as many times for either rendering. And I think that vagueness is intentional here. He's saying that the servant will show wisdom, and so wise will he be, so perfect will his actions show themselves to be, that he, he will prosper. His prosperity, his success is guaranteed. See, the Lord would not come. Jesus would not come with contingency plans. He didn't come and begin ministering with plan A, figuring, you know, if this doesn't work out, then we'll go to plan B, and if necessary, maybe even plan C. Right? He didn't just, you know, figure it out as He went. No, He came with a definite plan, a definite purpose, which He knew would succeed. At every step, His his success was assured. And therefore, God could assure us, could assure His people that He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Can we hear that threefold assurance and have any doubt? He will be high. He will be set above the common mass of mankind. He shall be lifted up, promoted and honored above all of sinful and rebellious men. He shall be exalted, more high, more honored than anyone who has ever existed. Notice how passive all of that is. Each one speaks of something that will be done to, acknowledged of, the servant. This is not something that the servant would need to seek. He wouldn't have to go out like men do, right, and promote himself and seek his own uh, glory, his own proclamation. He wouldn't have to take out ads so that people would think much of him, no. Because he acted with such wisdom, because he did precisely what man needed him to do, he would be exalted, he would be set on high, he would be proclaimed the glorious one, the good one, the one whom men serve. And so it was. When Jesus arose from the grave, 
on that first day of the week some 2,000 years ago. As Peter told the crowd in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And then he explains the significance of Jesus being raised up, of His resurrection. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. His resurrection was God's way of proclaiming to all the world. He is exactly whom He said He was. He is exactly what all of His words proclaimed, what all of His works demonstrated. He is the one who was the perfect man, who is also fully God. The one who did no sin, who committed no wrong, but who suffered for the sake of His people. And the price that He paid was perfect. The victory that He won was undimmed. And therefore God could say in Philippians 2, that He has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. After His resurrection, on that first Easter morning in Jerusalem, this proclamation was proved. Jesus, the promised servant of God, has been supremely exalted. He's arisen from the deep humility of the grave. He has been raised even to the heavens to sit at God's right hand. And one day soon He will return and He will stand before all of mankind and every single one of them will bow the knee and acknowledge that He is the Lord, He is the King, He is the supremely exalted one. We all, every one of us here, will bow before Jesus. Either we will bow right now, acknowledging Him as our Savior, as our King whom we love, or we will bow then in subjection and in terror, knowing that we spent our lives denying the only one who could save us and the one who now will judge us. My friends, we must bow now. We are called to lift holy voices to praise Him as our exalted King. We are called to confess that He is the one who is our hope. He is the one who has overcome our sin. He is the one who has given us the assurance of eternal life in His resurrected life. We are called to confess Him with our lips and with our very lives. And we can do nothing greater with our lives than to do that. However, before His exaltation, the servant was shockingly humbled before many. And that's the second thing we read here. First, God assures us that He's going to be supremely exalted. He's going to be victorious in a way that no man has ever been or ever will be victorious. But first, He must be humbled beyond the expectation of anyone. Now, verses 14 and 15 go together. Verse 14 begins with the word so, or just as or I'm sorry, as or just as. It's the, the condition. And on the basis of that condition, we can know the certainty of verse 15. So also. Just as this, so also that. If this happens, you can be confident of that. And so verse 14 shows us something that the people would be able to see, something they would be able to demonstrate which will give them assurance of what we read in verse 15. 
the thing they would see is the shocking humility of Jesus. They would be astonished at Him. They would be shocked almost to unbelief. They wouldn't know what to say, what to think, how to act. And not just a few, many would see the servant and be shocked. The many who saw Him dragged into Jerusalem by the servants of the chief priests. The many who heard the accusations and then called for His death before Pilate. The many who watched Him struggle, broken and bleeding, to carry His cross. The many who saw the spikes pierce His flesh and witnessed His agony as the cross was raised. The many who mocked and who slandered Him. And then as His suffering progressed, stared silently. And then finally turned away repulsed. On the day of His death, many were shocked by God's servant Jesus. They were astonished because of the complete disfigurement that He endured. Understand, Jesus was crucified by men professionally trained in the art of killing. They had brought torture to the level of a science. They knew what hurt most and how to intensify that pain and how to prolong the outpouring of pain. The Roman guards were extremely efficient at making death something that was to be feared with great terror. So when the crowds looked upon Jesus, they saw they saw suffering that made them cringe in horror. They watched as He agonized and struggled to draw a single breath. But they also saw that it was more than that. That it wasn't the brokenness of His body, the tearing of His flesh, the outpouring of His blood that made Him cry out. It was instead the fact that God the Father had turned from Him. It was the darkness into which God plunged the earth for three hours, signifying that because this one on the cross bore the sins of the many, therefore He would reject Him. It was that which wrung from Him the cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? They saw this, they watched, and they stood in horror, stunned that anyone could suffer that much in body and also in soul. When they looked on Jesus, they saw not a man, they saw not a teacher, they saw not a miracle worker, they saw one who was twisted and condemned and crushed by the very wrath of God and it left them appalled. Seeing that, His followers would be filled with confusion. How could this happen? How could this be? He's God's, this God's servant. He's the anointed one, the Christ. We saw Him raise the dead. We saw Him cleanse the leper. We saw Him bring about healing to those who were sick and deliverance to those who were oppressed. How could He be destroyed? And they weren't alone in their astonishment. The crowds that watched from afar also were astonished. How could any man endure such torment as being forsaken by God? He was humbled so deeply that even callous men were shocked and dismayed. Even, even the leader among the guards, the centurion who had witnessed countless deaths upon the cross, looked upon Him and said, Surely this was the Son of God. But God had foretold exactly that. 
He had declared it 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. God warned His people, this is coming. And He said, just as you see this, just as you see My servant disfigured and destroyed, just as His destruction unnerves you and leaves you stunned, so also you shall see something hopeful and triumphant and good. But first the cross. After the battle comes peace. After humiliation comes exaltation. After the destruction of the cross, then you see the glory of the victory. Because Jesus was shockingly humbled before men. That we know. And therefore also He would be not merely given success, but found to be stunningly gracious to the nations, which is the last thing we see here. That's our final point. That's the last thing that the Lord declares here through Isaiah. Jesus would come, Jesus has come, as the servant stunningly gracious to the nations. But verse 15 starts out saying something that's odd to our ears. Just as many were astonished at Him, so shall He sprinkle many nations. We hear that and we think, sprinkle many nations? That sounds odd. But it wouldn't have sounded odd to Israel. You see that word that's rendered sprinkle. It's a word that's very rare outside of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Especially in the form in which it's used here, it's almost only used in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Because it speaks of a priestly work. When the tabernacle and its furnishings were dedicated, a sacrifice was killed, its blood was caught. And that blood was sprinkled on everything, this verb, to purify it and render it holy. When the priests were ordained to their service, they were sprinkled with the blood of the covenant, which rendered them holy and set them apart for the service to the Lord. On the Day of Atonement each year, a sacrifice was offered first for the priests, and it was sprinkled before the throne of God. And then another sacrifice was killed. And that blood was sprinkled in the presence of God for the sake of the people, to render them holy before God. When a leper was cleansed from his illness, a sacrifice was offered, water was purified and declared holy, and that water was sprinkled on them to declare them clean from their defilement and holy before the Lord. So when he says he will sprinkle many nations, He's saying that, that they will be ritually purified from their uncleanness. That which was detestable to God, that which was defiled by sin and rebellion, Christ in His priestly office would cleanse, would render holy, would enable to come before God. Folks, this is God's assurance the servant would fulfill the promises of the covenant. This is how Abraham would become the father of nations who would join him in serving God as God proclaimed in Genesis 17. This is how Abraham's descendants, as promised in Genesis 22, 
would become as many as the sea, the grains of sand on the seashore or the stars in the night sky. This is how Micah's promise would play out. When the prophet proclaimed in Micah 4 verse 2 that many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. All of this God would accomplish through Jesus His servant who would sprinkle many nations, purifying them and devoting them to the service of the Lord. Confronted by the servant, by this servant, the kings of many nations would shut their mouths, says the Lord. What does that mean? In Isaiah 39, verse 9, David says he will not open his mouth in complaint. He will shut his mouth in humility before the Lord, recognizing that he dare not say anything before God. He dare not complain about God's providence. But on the other hand, in Psalm 2, we read how the kings of the earth regularly speak. They take counsel together, opening their mouths boldly. They speak rebelliously in the presence of God, boasting. So for those kings to shut their mouths, that implies that they have ceased They're boasting and they're rebelling and they're speaking against God. They have come in silent submission to the Lord, being struck dumb in awe by what the servant of God has done, being amazed and astonished at the work that Jesus has accomplished. The silence of the rulers of the earth is the silence of stunned submission. And that stunned submission arises because that which they have not been told they have seen and that which they have not heard they understand. You see, Israel had sacrifices by which it should have understood the suffering of Christ. Now they didn't. In their rebellion, they failed to recognize what was right before their eyes, what had been proclaimed to them through the work of the the temple for years. But the nations had not been told. What was said of Israel in Jeremiah 5, could be said of the nations at large. This people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and gone astray. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. In other words, the nations, because they hadn't seen the sacrifices of the temple, because they hadn't heard, the prophetic proclamation of the gospel. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing on the cross. They didn't know to expect the triumphant victory of the resurrection that the Israelites should have. The nations did not. But by means of the servant of God and by means of His victory, that was about to change. The promises of God's covenant would be preached to all of Adam's children. The sacrifice of the Savior would be revealed for all of mankind to see. The Spirit of God would go forth. The Word of the Lord would be proclaimed. The people of every land would see and would stand in stunned silence and joy. And they have. You have. You have heard. You have seen. You have heard not only The servant's shocking humiliation as he hung on the cross for the sake of our sins. But you have heard and you have seen the power of God to resurrect him 
You have heard how He was made high and lifted up and exalted. You have heard about the goodness of God to pour forth His Spirit who changes the hearts of God's people and causes them to receive Christ. You have heard, you have seen, you have understood God's stunning grace to sprinkle men who once were defiled by sin but now have made, been made holy and drawn near. And now having heard, having seen, what will you do? Will you open your mouth to speak a word of protest? Will you open your lips to dull His grace with some scientific sounding excuse? Will you seek faithlessly to make the Son of God more like you? Or Will you stand silent before Him? Will you hear of His grace with silent wonder? Will you receive the Gospel with stunned awe that tears the words from your lips? Hear me. That wordless wonder must be your response. You must stand in awe that God would love you that much as to pay that price for you. You must stand in silent wonder that God would create a victory for you that would overcome the power of death, that would free you from the clutches of sin, that would make even Satan powerless before you. That must leave you in stunned silence. And then it must raise you up to your feet, eager to proclaim to one another and to your children and to your parents and to your world what an amazing thing God has done through His servant. What a gracious thing God has accomplished. What an amazing comfort and joy is ours. It must lead you in the aftermath of that stunned silence to sing His praise and proclaim His goodness for everyone to hear, no matter what they think of you, no matter what it costs you, no matter what the world might, how the world might deride or chasten you. You must receive and confess and praise Him right now. Confident that He has done everything He said He would do. You must receive and confess and praise Him daily. At home with your family. At work with your friends. At school with your, with your peers. Out in the world. Let there be no one who declines to confess Him. Nor one moment or one aspect of your life that is free from proclaiming that in Him is your hope, in Him is your life, in Him is your all. And God will receive that humble offering of your confession and of your life. And He will use it to turn others to the stunned silence of faith. He will use it to turn others to the glorious message of Christ and His victory. And God will receive the glory that He is due. May He accomplish this in and through us his people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have done through your Son Jesus the one thing that would free us, the one thing that would give us life, enable us to recognize the glory of that one thing. 
standing in stunned silence before you. And then boldly proclaiming your Son for all to hear. Use us, even in our weakness, to proclaim to others the glory and the goodness of what you have done. Father, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.